All right, my friends, I want to take just a moment of your time right now to extend a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say about joining me once a month live? And what would you say if you could do this from the comfort of your own home, your car, or your office? It's not just about joining me, but also about joining hundreds of other like-minded, live-inspired community members. And my friends, that is what I'm extending to you today, the invitation to join us in the Live Inspired in-studio with John O'Leary community. It's where we come together once a month for this exclusive webcast. We take pause. We focus on what is most important to you. We overcome challenges that affect you, and we ensure that you have tools to live into your best life, both personally and professionally. Registration for in-studio only happens a couple times each year, and here's a secret. Come on, lean in toward the speaker. It's happening soon. It's coming this May. Don't miss the opportunity to hold your spot right now. I want you to be one of the very first to know when in-studio registration opens. So go right now and learn a little bit more about InStudio by joining me at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I'm going to say that again, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I'd like you to go to that link right now, learn a little bit more about what InStudio really is, how it's going to elevate your life and why you ought to uh, learn when the waitlist becomes the opportunity to join us live and in living color. So one final time, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash waitlist. I can't wait for you to join me there in this exclusive community. I'm looking forward to doing life together with you. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck. And hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm curious. Have you ever finished a weekend and felt even more tired by Sunday evening than you felt Friday afternoon? Well, you're not alone. It turns out that we are by far the most overscheduled society in the history of the world. And that's just the way things are. We keep telling ourselves. It's just the way things are. It's the way it is. We go to the practices. We go to the games. We go to the meetings. We go to the events. We go to the dinners. We go to the parties. It's just the way it is. And yet our guest today reminds us that there's a better way, that there's a way to take pause, that there is an opportunity to slow down, that there is great reason to pause for Sabbath is the way our guest today would describe it. Her name is Judith Shulovitz. She is a phenomenal writer. She's a prolific thinker. She's an incredible friend of the Live Inspired podcast, and she wrote an article called The Sabbath. Uh, a friend of mine sent it to me, and it really challenged the way that I viewed the Sabbath time each weekend that I have and the opportunity I think we all have, regardless of our faith background, to choose once a week to slow down, to pause, to catch our breath, 
to actually acknowledge the gifts that we have, the work that we do, and the opportunities we have to do even bigger and better things going forward. During a period in all of our lives when we are all so overwhelmed with stuff and activities and things, Judith is going to remind us today of the gift of celebrating the Sabbath. My friends, I encourage you right now to open wide your minds. You'll need it for this one. Open wider your hearts. Open up your journals. Take some notes as I get to bring on to the show, the Live Inspired Podcast, our newest friend, Judith Sholovitz. Judith, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, as you just heard, we are the ones that feel glad. We're the ones that feel fortunate and lucky. For those of my listeners who don't yet know your work or the the work that you're doing, tell me a little bit more about the work you do today, Judith. Well, right now I'm writing a lot about feminism. I'm really interested in the question of why the terribly important work of raising up the next generation and producing workers for the economy is unpaid. And that is something that has a history. And it's a history that's been forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of fun recently discovering really interest, interesting feminist theorists going all the way back to the 17th century, not all of them women, who have uh, been complaining about this and having theories about why it is and theories about what we can do about it. So uh, it's been an amazing journey. And I'm trying to put that all together in a book that uh, follows a thread that tells some really fascinating stories about some people who had ideas so ahead of their time, they're ahead of ours. Mm. Well, I've, I've got a sneak peek into some of those ideas, some of those ladies and gentlemen. We will be asking you specifically about them here in a moment. But before we do, I'd like to hear about where your your story comes from. You live currently in New York City, but that's not the original home base. Detroit, baby. Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I was born in Detroit. We moved when I was five. We moved to Puerto Rico. Um, and I didn't like it much because my mom didn't like it much. And we moved from a big old house to a little apartment on the beach. Uh, and it was a kind of dangerous time to be living there, actually, to be an American there. Um, there was an independentist movement, and uh, that was unfortunately associated with the mob and was very violent. When I say the mob, I mean the Teamsters Union, which was pretty mobbed up in Puerto Rico. Tell me so why. I was kind of happy. And uh, I... I uh, I write in my book about how, in my book about the Sabbath, um, how I sought refuges uh, in various places in our home, in our synagogue, and um, that was sort of my first introduction to the idea that as people, when we aren't happy, we need refuge. Mm. And that kind of mutated eventually into a quest for the Sabbath many, many years later. You know, I mean, we're going to be going deep into the word Sabbath and what it means, what it meant for you, what it means for us and why it matters. But let's talk a bit about your faith. You grew up and you are actively practicing your Jewish faith. Was it always a meaningful uh, element of your life? Not at all. (laughs) It was not always a meaningful element of my life. Um, I grew up in a divided household where my mother was passionately Jewish, uh, a, a, an, an identity in which she was actually not supported by my father. Um, she uh, always wanted to be a rabbi, and mm. she, in fact, was able to become a rabbi when she was in her 40s, when um, the, the seminary that educates conservative rabbis, which is conservative being a denomination of Judaism, not conservative in the sense of being the most traditional, mm-hmm. 
um, admitted women. So she did become a rabbi. But, you know, there was a lot of tension in our household around Judaism. And in the end, most uh, my siblings and I went with my father, mm. and we were not religious. And in my 30s, I discovered that because I had rejected Judaism because of the family dynamics, I had thrown out an amazing culture and an amazing body of literature, uh, a set of rituals which could become meaningful if I really engaged them, and then I found from the outside to be suddenly very beautiful. So I had a kind of conversion moment, which is not to say I suddenly believed in God, because honestly, God isn't actually that important in Judaism compared to in Christianity. Wow. And God was like the last No, I'm, I'm curious, is that, is that your take on it? Or is that just, no, John, this is, this is truth. This is true. This, I'm, I'm getting this from um, a lot of study. Um, Judaism privileges ritual and community and study above faith. In fact, we don't use the term faith. We use the term practice. Mm. Um, the technical term for what Judaism is, is it's an orthopractic religion. It's orthopraxis. It's about right living and not about right belief. Wow. Now, that said, you know, Judaism is a very, has had a very long history, and a lot of people have had a lot of different ideas. But um, I would say that we have never really had the kind of investigation into faith uh, that Christians have had over time. So there was never a moment when if you didn't hold the right faith, you would be persecuted. Although yes. there have been times when if you didn't do the right thing, you would get in big trouble. That's interesting. So you and your siblings stepped away from the faith that you were brought up with and you are not alone. There's mass exodus among many of our young people away from their faith of heritage, not only in your own life, but why do you think for young people, do they frequently push away faith? I think they push away the culture that surrounds it. Um, so extrapolating from my own experience, for me, synagogue was a place for old people. It was not a place for young people. It was not vibrant. Um, this blessedly is not true anymore. There's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, forms of Judaism that are reaching out to young people and making it vibrant and exciting. Prayer isn't a big part of it. It's some part of it. Uh, it was very hard to identify with the prayers. Um, the prayers in Judaism are in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. A lot of people didn't have enough education to understand what they were saying, and thus it became a kind of boring ritual. Um, I didn't have the kind of education I needed. I never did. I got my children the kind of education, but I didn't have it because we lived in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. and there wasn't, it wasn't really available at that time. Um, so, I, And I just think that it's not... Um, it's not, it's just not synergistic with the lives we lead. And another thing that has happened is we have made a religion out of work. Hmm. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful article I was just reading in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson about this. It just came up, to, went up today, workism. Um, we have made a religion out of work. We take great pride in working harder than anyone else. We uh, don't take vacations. We have the, the fewest vacations in the West, in the industrialized world. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea of just taking time out to go pray, which isn't even all that meaningful if you're not doing it um, a lot because it, it gains in meaning the more you do it, um, it, it, just, it just doesn't go together. So 
Um, and it doesn't seem cool. Anything that doesn't seem cool is not something a young people, a young person is going to do. Well, you mentioned in your mid thirties that, and I, by the way, I consider that a young person at the age that I am today. So lo- looking into your mid thirties, <laughs> you, you came back to this religion of your childhood. What, what was it that finally brought you back? Depression. Um, and just the sense that something was missing. And uh, I would say the Sabbath, which is why I wrote my book, uh, The Sabbath World. Um, it was, uh, that was the means by which I came back. I started going to synagogue because uh, I just felt something was wrong mm-hmm. on Saturday. Something was missing. I was going to branches with my friends, but we were talking about work. We are gossiping about work. My friends were from work. I didn't know my neighbors, you know. I knew my work friends. And uh, those were the people I was hanging out with on Saturday. I was shopping. I was running my errands. Just something seemed off to me, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But there happened to be a very beautiful, old-fashioned synagogue right down the street. I lived in Brooklyn. In fact, it was so beautiful that it had been used in a movie uh, about ultra-Orthodox Jews um, to sort of connote this old world. And so I was attracted by it at first architecturally. Mm-hmm. And then I used to go sit in the back and I would cry through the services quietly. I knew a lot of the tunes. They were the same tunes I'd heard when my mother dragged us all to synagogue in Puerto Rico. And uh, they opened up memories and pain and longing. And I had a smart rabbi who did not encroach for a while, for quite a while. And when he did, he did it in a very smart way, which is he simply invited me to some community lunches and uh, didn't make a lot of inquiries about what was making me cry or anything like that. And I got to know people and I started going to their homes again on the Sabbath because that's when uh, they had the communal meals. And, um, you know, that's what that's what brought me in. And then I, I, I knew that there was beauty and that there was great learning um, that ha- was not a form of learning that I had and that I wanted access to. Um, and and today, sort of the people I met kind of brought me in step by step. Judith, you, you've used the word that many of our listeners would be familiar with, some incredibly familiar with, and others maybe they've never heard before, Sabbath. So uh, give us uh, college class 101 of what that word means. Well, uh, let's see. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Uh, <laughs> in, the <laughs> in the beginning. Right. In the beginning. In the beginning, on the seventh day, God rested. That's where it all begins. Um, uh, it's not necessarily where it really begins historically, but let's say that's where it all begins for each of us who encounters the Bible. Um, and uh, it's a big mystery. The rabbis spend a lot of time talking about it. Why did God rest? Um, but, uh, that's, that's what God did. And it's called Shabbat in Hebrew. Uh, it was turned into Sabbath in English. Um, and, uh, it was something, if you read the old Testament and the five, particularly in the five books of Moses, uh, God repeats over and over again, mm-hmm. keep the Sabbath day holy. Um, there are two reasons given for keeping the Sabbath in the old Testament. The first reason is because I did it, meaning God did it. Mm-hmm. So imitate me. That's called imitatio Dei, imitate God. And the second reason is because you were strangers in Egypt and you never 
got to rest. So remember the importance of resting and not working. Um, uh, so, you know, this was a, a really central Jewish practice for a really long time. And the Christians took it over. Well, of course, the first Christians were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And later, uh, over the centuries, um, it moved to Sunday. There are a lot of reasons for that, but probably the biggest one was simply to differentiate Christians from Jews when the Christians were struggling to disentangle themselves from Judaism. Um, Another reason that was given was, you know, Christ rose on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. In my book, I point out that if you think about it in sheer numerical terms, many, many more Christians have celebrated the Sabbath in history than Jews did, just because there were so many more Christians than Jews. Um, And some of them observed it very, very strictly. Uh, In the Reformation and with the rise of Protestantism, it became much more important because uh, it hadn't been as important in Catholicism. And the Protestants went back to the Bible and they discovered that it was really one of God's central commandments and they began to practice it. Um, And uh, our nation was founded by people who the Puritans, the pilgrims came here in quest of a perfect Sabbath that was not tainted by all the things that went on in England at the time, like air meetings and festivals on Sunday. Um, and they wanted a sober, serious, prayerful Sabbath. So it's, uh, it's something that's as Christian as it is Jewish. And uh, if I were to give a kind of sociological definition of what it is, The Sabbath is a day when we don't work, all of us, at the same time. And it's really important because it's a time when, by not working at the same time, we all come together and we, whether we pray together, we eat together, we simply, you know, take walks together, talk together, we create community. And we remember that we are more than what we do for a living, or if you, to jump ahead to my current book, mm-hmm. or you do it and don't make a living at it, but nonetheless, you're working. Um, you know, we are more than work. We are human beings. We are social beings. We are cult beings of creatures of culture that we create through uh, this new identity we form on the day we're not working. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, I argue in my book, one of the foundational ideas of Western civilization. We're going to have that a link. Might be more than we're no, I, for. I don't think it is more than we're looking for. You, you wrote a beautiful book on it. You also wrote an article that blew me away. It's, um, it's experienced now in years. It has, I think, 16 years of experience since you've written it, and it is still worth checking out. I'll have a link to it on our show notes. It's titled Bring Back the Sabbath. It was in the New York Magazine back in March of 2003. And I'm just going to read to you a few sentences, and I'd like you to unpack why you shared what you shared. So here we go. Uh, Listeners, uh, as recently as 125 years ago, you would have been hard-pressed to find a museum or a library open on a Sunday. 80 years ago, football was considered way too vulgar to be played on Sundays. Oldsters remember standing in line at the bank on Fridays to get cash for the weekend. Youngsters assume that they can withdraw at will. Anyone older than 30 remembers living with the expectation that most stores would be closed on Sunday. 
The expectation now is that they will be open, and we're miffed when they aren't. Two more sentences. The over-scheduled Sunday, soccer Sunday, Little League Sunday, yoga class Sunday, catch up around the house Sunday. Americans still go to church, of course, but only in between chores, sporting events, and shopping expeditions. You can now find an ATM machine inside mega churches. Congregants don't have to waste a minute between service and the mall. They can do it all in the back of church. These are words that you wrote 16 years ago. Tell me what they meant then and what they mean to us today. Oh, my goodness. They mean even more. Um, uh, right. The question of how many people remember the, uh, the the Sunday in which it was impossible to shop and do things. Uh, I think that's probably fewer of them are with us than, than were back then. Mm-hmm. When the Puritans came to this country, they instituted something called blue laws, which were very, very strict rules about what you could do on Sunday, far stricter than anything. Uh, any of us have encountered, and I won't go into them in depth, but but what remained was a a sort of civic culture in which it was sort of agreed upon that, uh, well, there were actually laws in the books that, uh, you know, stores would be closed so that the people who worked in them could go to church or whatever it was, um, that banks would be closed, um, and liquor would not be sold. And going back further, um, going back to the 19th century, it was felt that if you started opening these uh, civic institutions like libraries and operas and things like that, that it would detract from this general atmosphere of calm Mm. um, and take people away from the home, take people away from church um, and uh, promote... Uh, sort of send the culture down a slippery slope toward not keeping the Sabbath. And it's just terribly important in the 19th century. You would be surprised at how many debates there were over how the Sabbath would be kept. There was a moment in the 1830s when there was a fight over whether or not the mail would be delivered on Sunday that I would compare in intensity and ferocity uh, to the abortion debate. The stakes were different, maybe not as high, but uh, the intensity was very high. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just terribly important to people. So there was this fight over it. You know, I personally side with those who say museums and libraries should be open um, because there was also a, a counter tradition of the Sabbath of using Sundays in the history of the Sabbath of using Sunday schools uh, as a way to educate the poor and the unlettered and those who worked, children who worked in factories and had no other access to literacy. Um, and the idea of keeping libraries open, a place of refuge, if you weren't going to go to church, is very appealing to me and museums as well. Um, but that's because I'm a, you know, I'm a creature of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, playing sports, which is, after all, when you're televising it on TV or selling tickets is a commercial activity, really, um, was really just something that people didn't, it didn't feel right to people. They, they had this memory of this, I, this day that was supposed to be held sacred, even if they themselves weren't going to church. And it just felt wrong. And it felt like we were sliding down the path toward commercializing Sunday. So that was another barrier that had to fall. Um, Ju- I do think, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. Judith, ig- ignoring just for a moment religion and theology and spirituality, why do you think Sabbath matters still? Because I mean, the, the 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 argument you make is is really it's really for you less about religion, 
and much more about the human condition on, on this need to pause and breathe and rest. So wh- why is that so important? Well, I do think there's two things. First of all, I think we have, as, as the author of the wonderful article in the Atlantic today says, we have made a religion out of work. We, and I actually said this in my book as well, we take pride in working longer hours. It's a sign of class, actually. If you uh, have the kind of job where you are expected to be um, in the office or on call all the time, um, and you're a better worker than other people, you are, you are considered uh, just a more successful person. And obviously, if you're making more money or you have a higher prestige job that just demands your attention all the time, you are a higher status person. So that's one thing. We just recognize no limits to uh, the value of work. And I, one thing I think is very important is pushing back against that, mm. having something to push back against that. And the second thing is a slightly more difficult concept to grasp, and that is we live in an era in which time itself is becoming fragmented. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is we no longer share our common schedule. People no longer work nine to five jobs. Um, they work on all kinds of different schedules. Um, they work in the gig economy. You make your own hours, right? Supposedly one of the great features of the gig economy. I mean, let's set aside the fact that uh, all that freedom comes with lower pay, but it, you make your own hours. But that means you, you're not on the same schedule as your kids. You're not on the same schedule as your partner. Um, you're not on the same schedule as your parents. Um, everybody's on their own schedule. And that's actually very lonely making. And I think that's getting worse. And part of it is because of globalization, because a lot of people work in the global economy, and that means they might um, be corresponding to a Japanese uh, day or whatever it is. But you know, just part of it is the breakup of the kind of institutions and the norms that uh, made it seem normal for us all to work at the same time and to rest at the same time. That's just becoming, it's becoming an idea that we've forgotten. And I think it's, I think it's hurting us. It's hurting our uh, civil institution, our civil society. It's hurting us personally. It's making us lonely. So in saying that, how do we, this society, I'm thinking of all of our listeners, I'm thinking of myself and my wife and our family, how do we begin pushing back? How do we begin taking back this day of rest? Well, one thing I find very encouraging, and I think it's one reason you might be interviewing me, is lately there's been a tremendous resurgence of interest in my book because there's been a lot of conversation about the technological Sabbath, the idea that you put away your devices for, you know, a day. Um, I imagine that eventually people will realize that if they're going to do that, they have to do that at the same time as others in their uh, immediate vicinity, because otherwise they're going to be pretty lonely. What do we do now when we're lonely? We text, we go on social media, you know, we use our devices to connect. If you're going to shut that down, you better you know, have someone around, or mm-hmm. you're going to be pretty lonely. Um, so I feel as though even if people think of this right now as a, like a kind of self-discipline that they impose 
only on themselves, I think they're going to find that it doesn't work unless you do it as a group. So that's one thing that I find very encouraging. Another thing is, you know, the nine to five workday, that was enforced by law. There was something called the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it still exists, but there are just so many workarounds now that it might as well not exist. And that means that people are working longer and longer hours. Bosses don't have the same respect for people's time. Again, there's this culture of workaholism. Um, I think we could regulate, start to push back against the encroachment of the workday and the encroachment of the ethos of work and start to recognize that vacations are important, regular schedules are important, and that we're losing that. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to the days of the blue laws when you can't uh, go shopping on Sunday or buy liquor on Sunday or watch sports on Sunday. I, I, I don't think that, that anybody would accept that anymore. But I, I am trying to promote through my book an idea that we should be conscious of the ways in which we let commerce and capitalism kind of colonize our time and isolate us one from the other. I'm going to read to you, and then I'd like you to comment on it, words that you wrote, and they are how you end your, uh, your article, and they are kind of how you drop the mic. So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to read to you the, the, the mic drop. So here we go. <laughs> what was creation's mic. climatic culmination? The act of stopping. Why would God have considered it so important to stop? Rabbi Elijah Vilna put it this way. God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only once we stop creating it and start to think about why we did so. The implication is clear. We could let the world wind us up and set us to marching like mechanical dows that go and go and go until they fall over because they don't have a mechanism that allows them to pause. But that would make us less than human. We have to remember to stop because we have to stop to remember. And then the mic gets dropped. So Judith, tell, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful paragraph. Tell me what it means. Uh, well, I'm, uh, of course, obviously drawing on some Jewish uh, writing there, but um, I was reading it a little strongly. It's kind of my opinion. Um, why does God rest? It's actually a, a theological mystery I explore in my book. And let me just say one thing about theology. You know why it's worth reading? It's worth reading because it's also sociology, it's also philosophy, um, and it also tells us how to live. It's not just dry, abstruse, irrelevant stuff. And history. So, I mean, every every dig they've ever done reveals the scripture to be accurate, actually, not inaccurate. It's historically relevant. Yes, it is. I mean, I do think that there's history. I don't think it's history as we think of it, but there's definitely, you know, historical influences on the stories in the Bible. I don't think God created the world in seven days and rested. Um, but I think that's a story that, that was meaningful to the people who wrote it. And how was it meaningful? It's an interesting question. So they're asking this theological question. Why did God rest? And God rested, this rabbi concluded, in order to contemplate the goodness of his creation. Remember, every step of the way, God did this, God did that, and it was good. And how do you contemplate the goodness of your creation if you're busy creating? You gotta stop. And that's, I think, a really powerful lesson. Whether or not you read the Bible, whether or not you believe in creation, whether or not you believe in God, it's a really important lesson that you are not going to appreciate 
what you have, what is, what new ways of thinking are available to you, um, what you've done and who you are. If you're doing, 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 um, you have to stop and you have to reflect um, and you have to enjoy um, what you have. Otherwise, it's worthless. What's the point? Right on. You are pivoting a little bit from the, the Sabbath to talking about and writing about feminism. So we're going to make kind of a leap here, but I think there are ties that, that kind of thread it together. Tell, talk about forgotten feminism. So I, uh, so what you're referring to is a, a series that I'm writing in the New York Review of Books, and I'm trying to weave together into a book. Um, the forgotten feminisms, and I say feminisms rather than feminists because, number one, the word didn't exist for some of the people I write about. And second of all, um, they were, what I'm interested in are the ideas that these, these people espouse rather than just the people, though they all have interesting stories and I tell their stories. Um, but the thread that ties them all together is they're answering a question which I think could not be more relevant today. And the question is, why is it that the most important work that anyone can do, which is the work of reproducing and raising the next generation of workers, right? It's terribly important from an economic standpoint. It's terribly important in the sense that, you know, every species, its prime function is self-reproduction. And of course, it's uh, once you become a parent, you realize it's the most meaningful thing you do. Mm. Um, um, so why is that work not only not compensated, but we have to pay a lot for it, right? <laughs> Having kids breaks the bank. Um, and it also, and most importantly for me, it, I believe it is the most uh, central obstacle, the most important obstacle to women's equality. Um, I don't think that, um, I don't think the culture is the answer. I don't think that people are just, men are sexist and they're clinging to their positions of power. I mean, I think that's going on. But I think that fundamentally, Women cannot compete with men as long as they're having to do work that is not valued and is not paid. Um, there was an organization called Wages for Housework that I haven't yet written about in my column. And they were in the 70s. And they were misinterpreted as saying, well, the husbands should pay the wives. That's not at all what they were saying. They were saying the state should support parenthood. Um, parenthood is enriching the state. The state is exploiting the labor of parents and caregivers, and the state should pay that back in the form of support. Um, and so the, the question I ask is, why is, it, why is this work, why is care work devalued and, un, and either unpaid or grossly underpaid? And I try to trace a history of people who noticed this and talked about it and also sort of gave answers to it. I say in the beginning of, of the book, I say, these are people who were so far ahead of their time, they were, they're ahead of ours. And mm -hmm. that's why they've been forgotten. So Judith, as you take a look around, not only your own neighborhood, your own apartment building, New York City and beyond, are you optimistic about where things are heading? Wow. Um, yes and no. I feel there's a sense of renewal among young people, perhaps as a way of pushing back against this work culture 
So that's a positive thing. Um, but I'm, I'm not optimistic at the same time in the sense that I feel that with the breakdown of our institutions and the things that hold us together, people are ever more isolated and their work becomes ever more isolated. So until we are able to reform institutions that hold us together, um, I, I fear that our time will be more fragmented, our society will be more fragmented, and we will be lonelier. Um, and I worry that that's just going to continue. So you, you're answering that at a very macro level. Speak to just one of my listeners. Talk to my wife or one of our, our listeners in Florida or Melbourne or anywhere else they may be tuning in right now. What What is one thing that we can do to take back the Sabbath, whether that means in a re- religious context or um, from a time standpoint? I'm going to say have a meal together. Always have a meal together. The people I talk to who are most nostalgic for the old-fashioned Sunday uh, were people who remembered Sunday dinner Mm. or a Sunday church picnic, which happened every Sunday. Um, Break bread together. After all, that's what break is, you know? Mm. Um, Break bread together. Make sure there's a meal that everybody's all together. Invite people over. um, Make a big fuss about it and do it every week. Make it a tradition. And I think you're going to find that something really good happened. Um, don't let soccer get in the way. <laughs> don't let shopping get in the way. I know the soccer part is really hard. I have kids. I know that's hard. But just make sure it happens um, because that is how you create community. And community is what is going to save us. Uh, Miss Judith, we have seven questions that weave all of our guests together. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears with you right now into the Live Inspired 7. What is the best book you have ever read? The Bible. <laughs> what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little child, whether that was in Puerto Rico or Detroit or Miami, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Hmm. Uh, listening to my parents. I don't listen to my parents even now, but I sure don't listen to my parents. They had a lot of good ideas. Um, so uh, being able to take in the wisdom of the elders, let's put it in grandiose. Right on. Our parents and our elders frequently become wiser as we age. If your house or your apartment caught fire and all living things were already out and you had an opportunity to safely run back in and grab one item, just one, what would you grab? I would grab the books I made when the kids were little of photographs and little, you know, Mac yes. books of them as children. I could not live without those. Even though they're on my computer, the pictures themselves are on my computer, but the books are not. I created stories and those, those are all in one place. So I would consider them one thing. I would just sweep them up and run out the door. That's awesome. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a gorgeous beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Um, who would I want to be seated right next to? I think one of two people, either the founder of a Jewish movement called Crocodism, which now we think of as very strict and stern, but actually was a kind of mystical tradition when mm-hmm. it was founded and, um, the rabbis were full of wonderful stories. Or I would want to sit next to um, Glossburn and Martin Buber who collected those stories into a book. Mm. 
Judith, what's the best advice you've ever received? Ask yourself, what would it be like to get up every morning and do that thing? Would it feel good or would it feel bad? Every time I have failed to take that advice, whether taking a job or moving somewhere, I have regretted it. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Trust yourself. Mm. Stop doubting everything you do. Stop wishing you'd done everything differently and realize that everything will happen for a reason and move on. Judith Shulovitz, it has been said that all great individuals, mothers, writers, human beings can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Uh, I set a good example for my children. <laughs> Indeed you did. And uh, you have set a good example and a mighty challenge for the rest of us. I'm going to let your words get the last word today. This from an article written in 2003. Judith, here it is one more time. We could let the world wind us up and set us to marching like mechanical dolls that go and go and go until they fall over because they don't have a mechanism that allows them to actually slow down and pause. But that would make us less than human. We have to remember, my friends, to stop because we have to stop to remember Judith, I want to thank you for writing those words. I want to thank you for reminding us of the power and the beauty and the importance of Sabbath. And I want to thank you for being a living example of it. Oh, well, thank you, John. I want to thank you for having me on your wonderful show and for being such an inspiration to so many of us. So thank you. Well, it's been an honor. And my friends, that is Judith. I am John. And today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, guys, if you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did, don't miss my Monday motivation essay. I'll reflect on my main takeaway from today's discussion and send it directly to your inbox so that you can begin your week just right. I want you to go right now and sign up at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash Monday hyphen motivation. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash Monday hyphen motivation. I'll include a link in the show notes. See you there.